In the last 24 hours, this episode has become exceptionally relevant. And we're both very glad that we recorded this episode with our guest this week, Douglas Williams. I just want to take a moment to acknowledge that Bernie Sanders attended a rally in Seattle. He was there to speak, and two Black Lives Matter activists protested and took the stage. Bernie Sanders decided to leave and not give the speech he was there to give to his supporters. Then, in the evening in Seattle, he addressed some of what was raised in protest against him by Black Lives Matter activists earlier. Anyone monitoring or watching this story explode on social media could see some of what was happening and how people who took sides were, get, were going at each other. We're going to talk about that on this week's episode. Uh, with that said, I hope you enjoy this week's episode of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. to Unauthorized Disclosure. I am one of your co-hosts, Rania Kalik, here with my other co-host, Kevin Gastola. Hey, Kevin. It's good to be doing another show. Yeah, it's good to have you back. Um, we are really, really excited to have on the show today um, our good friend Douglas Williams. He is a doctoral student at Wayne State University in Detroit, where he researches labor policy and working class radical movements. And he also writes at the South Lawn, um, which is a great website you should check out. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Douglas. No problem. Glad to be here. So we've got so much to talk about. Um, I guess, like, let's start with, um, well, let's, I mean, Kevin, you wanted to mention, I mean, you were telling me before we opened the show that uh, it's almost the year anniversary to the murder of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri by Darren Wilson. Um and that's, I mean, I believe that's August 9th, um, and it's coming up. And so, um, I guess in this, like in the spirit of like the anniversary of since I guess Black Lives Matter sort of started, we, why don't we open by talking to you, Douglas, about some of the stuff that's been going on recently, which you've been writing about around Bernie Sanders, um, and the issue of Black Lives Matter and people criticizing Bernie Sanders for, being um for not talking about race enough i guess was the critique if i if i if i remember correctly yes well so the thing about that critique is that it would be true if we lived in a space where we didn't have you know context and facts and information to back up the opposing argument, which is that he has talked about the issues that are important to the working class of color, but we do have those things, right? <laughs> so, you know, recent Gallup poll asking people to list their top issues 
And issues like education, issues like jobs, the economy, you know, these are issues that garnered over 40% of the polling survey. And with regards to the, the nebulous issue of quote unquote race relations, which would almost certainly put Black Lives Matter under and stuff like that, it got 13%. And I think what it shows is that, listen, you're much more likely to die of diabetes as a person of color or other completely treatable and reversible diseases than you are to be shot by the police. And listen, that is a very important thing, right? We should have a justice system where you are not more likely to be given the death penalty if you are a black person who kills a white person than if you are a white person that kills a black person, right? You should not be in a justice system where racial profiling is a thing. But this notion that because Bernie Sanders has focused his campaign on issues of economy, of political economy, the notion that that means he's not talking about race issues is, quite frankly, out of touch with reality. And I don't really... It, 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 is, it is a seriously mind-boggling charge. It really is. Well, I mean, the way it was... So, I mean, I, I you know, for people, just like to, a reminder to people who are listening, I mean, this this goes back to what happened at Netroots with Bernie Sanders and um, Martin O'Malley, um, two, Dem- two presidential um, contenders for the Democratic primary, um, being, like, sh- being, I guess, protested um, on stage by people who, um, you know, by people who were telling, saying, you know, like, you need to say Black Lives Matter and you need to say her name and all this stuff. And um, I just remember Martin O'Malley, who, by the way, like, has a horrible record. And I say this as somebody who's not, like, I'm not, like, this big Bernie, like, you know, fangirl. Um, but, I mean, Bernie Sanders has a good record on domestic issues when it comes to race, whereas Martin O'Malley's terrible, terrible record, you know, as mayor in Baltimore. Um, and all he had to do, like, he he got yelled at, and um, he said, I think he said, all lives matter, and everybody got really mad. And then he basically said, sorry, and then he said, black lives matter, and everybody was fine with him. And it was just to me that 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 was really striking because it sort of it seemed to mean that, you know, this kind of empty sloganeering is all you need to do to make people happy. Um, and that's really like that's really troubling. It's like that the next day or a couple of days later, Hillary Clinton, all she had to do was say Black Lives Matter. And like, does that mean she's in the good graces of like of people who are protesting police brutality just because she said that because she's got a horrible record too. So like, it's really troubling to me because it seems like it allows politicians to just engage in this sort of empty rhetoric um, without having to do anything with their actions to back it up. You know, one thing I always like to ask people, uh, if people don't know who Ricky Ray Rector is, (laughs) Ricky Ray Rector was a, um, was someone who sat on Arkansas's death row in 1992. And he was someone who had mental, like in, in, you know, disability, mental disabilities and stuff like that. 
And for the purposes of seeming tough on crime, right, Bill Clinton essentially flew back to Arkansas just to pull the lever on on this guy's execution. Yeah, so, I mean, he, was he playing Rick, the saxophone like when he did that, it, though? Right? <laughs> was he like, playing the saxophone? I though? mean, like, what about the millions of African Americans who have suffered under this regime of welfare policy devolution to state and local governments and the annihilation of what little welfare state the United States had prior to the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act of 1996, better known as welfare reform. Those lives matter, <laughs> right? Bill, Hillary Clinton is a supporter of the death penalty. Do those lives matter? And it, it, it's one of those things where we have taken a politics of substance and things grounded in actual actions that people have taken, and we have replaced it with a politics of rhetoric and affectation, right? And what this means is that Martin O'Malley can go on a radio show after his Netroots Nation speech, despite the fact that he put much of the policing practices in place to, to so far as to end with a Freddie Gray mm -hmm. being found dead in Baltimore, right? Being died, being killed in police custody. Like, all he has to say is, hey, man, I'm sorry. Black Lives Matter, and all's forgiven, right? But Bernie Sanders, who has never scored lower than a 90 on the NAACP's rating list since he was elected to Congress, he, you know, like, he's coming in for all this fire. And it's just... Well, I see this... It, 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 it's, it, it, it's really... It is really sad just how substanceless and formless politics around such a crucial issue in the lives of African Americans has become. It really is. Well, it, and it kind of um, it kind of brings up like um, the uh, sorry, I totally lost my train of thought. Well, one quick thing <laughs> before you move on because. I was thinking about the fact that one of the organizers involved in the action at Netroots Nation was uh, rather dismissive or, or it seemed to me didn't quite want to accept the importance of Bernie Sanders being involved with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee when, you know, the civil rights movement was happening and... Well, not just that. She, like, ignored the rest of, like, she went, well, he was involved with SNCC. Big deal. So like, that, what's he doing now? And it's like, well, wait. Like, there was also a lot of decades between, like, then, then in, like, 2015. And you can't just erase those and what he's done then, too. Yeah, so my thing to Douglas is just to ask if this represents a larger issue with the movement and not being able to recognize solidarity organizing when it is taking place. It, it is. And, you know, to see that piece in RH Reality Check, so what? 
you know, Bernie Sanders organized with SNCC. So what? It, it's like, you know, aside from the fact of the individual who wrote that piece of Monty Gandhi and her history of, you know, being a foreclosure <laughs> lawyer in Los Angeles, right? You know, you know, putting aside that minor quibble, you know, the notion that the fa- the notion that um, that that stuff doesn't matter, that the history that Bernie Sanders has had organizing with SNCC. Putting, you know, advocating for fair housing as mayor of Burlington and his voting record in the nation's capital as both a United States representative and a United States senator from Vermont. There's a record here, you know, if, and if people want to go look it up, it is at thomas.loc.gov. And you scroll down to the bottom of the page and you click on Bernard Sanders and you can see the bills that this guy has sponsored and co-sponsored in his time in Washington. And it's stuff like free public school education for college students, something that would that would undoubtedly improve the lot of African-Americans, you know, and it's just it's. We've turned solidarity into a word that 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 has no force behind it, you know, like intersectionality or any of these other terms bandied about certain sectors of the internet nowadays that have no force of meaning behind it whatsoever. And the fact is that I think if a lot of these activists step back and compare the records of those running for office, right, running for president in this election, I think they would see that Bernie Sanders is by far the best candidate for their issues. Does that mean he's perfect? No, right? Like, he's not the second coming of Lenin or anything (laughs) like that, right? But I think if you are a socialist who cares about socialism in the United States and overturning this vicious cycle of capitalism that we find ourselves under, Bernie Sanders is a pretty damn good start, right? (laughs) And the fact that the fact that this is not being recognized and has even been derided by folks like Alicia Garza called saying that, you know, with the weird economic populist determinism of, you know, Bernie Sanders and his supporters, um, it, it, it's, it's really disheartening, not just as a socialist, but as a black man, as a third-generation organizer who looks at a photo of his grandmother organizing in the, during the Civil Rights Movement every day. It's really, it, it's really disheartening. Mm. Yeah, I know it is. It is. Um, and that's actually, I'm really glad, um, I'm really glad Kevin brought that up because I feel like this is like, so I used to think that some of this stuff, the, the these sort of reactions on the left um, were isolated to online spaces, but it seems like, yeah, it's, I don't, I guess it's, it, maybe I thought it was carrying over into real life, but it seems to be kind of a, you know, a history of this on the left, right? 
where, um, and I think it goes back to identity politics. I don't know if you would agree with that, but where it's just like everything's about identity, you know, the identity politics, and it, it leaves out a lot of, um, you know, a lot of class analysis. Um, it leaves out a lot of, and it makes everything about, you know, splitting up and doing things separately. Like, I don't know if I'm making sense here. Well, um, I mean, I mean, you are like, I think about that piece, which I'm sure you know very well, Rania, uh, <laughs> by the group called Showing Up for Racial Justice or Surge, um, which or, which advocates for white people organizing in white communities, right, almost exclusively. Listen, I live in Detroit, right? Detroit is 82% black, so do we not ever have white organizers in Detroit? Do we not? I mean, again, what is solidarity? Right? Solidarity is not just some watchword that people use at their, you know, club meetings or whatever. It's a it's a word that has actual meaning and force and history behind it in our movements, right? In the seven sixties and seventies, you had the young patriots led by a white man from North Carolina, right? teaming up with Black Panthers in Chicago, right, to the point where, I mean, look, these people actually put their lives on the line, right? Fred Hampton was murdered, right? Uh, There's a story, there's an article on Libcom in the last couple weeks talking about how preacher man Vesperman, who was a leader of the Young Patriots, actually put his body in between Fred Hampton and local police officers that were trying to, you know, lock him up for whatever reason, right? Like, that's solidarity, right? And so much of this feels like, feels like it doesn't have any benefit outside of assuaging the egos of luminaries of, movement of of protests and stuff like that, like protest groups like Black Lives Matter and the guilt of their white quote-unquote allies, right? (laughs) I mean, damn an ally, right? (laughs) Shit going down right now is far too important for something as passive as allyship. I need comrades. Well, let's let's talk about some of these things. Like, I mean, some of the things that Serge is suggesting is allyship, right? Is, like... Literally, over and over, I've seen these articles showing up, and this one article, I'm going to actually, I have to quote from it because it's too good not to. This is from like from a person with Surge, the group of white people who organize white people. This is the against, woman who does you know, yoga? To protest racial justice. Um, no, this is, I don't know if this woman does yoga or not. This is a different piece. This is, um, this is, uh. By another white person. I don't know maybe if it's a man or a woman. I'm not sure. Um, but this person says, um, <clears throat> is talking about how awful, you know, police brutality is. Um, and, like, it makes a list for for what white people can do. But so this is, this is the comparison of what these activities that white people can engage in from this list is being compared to. The, the, the author says, during the Underground Railroad, a light in the window of a home signified a safe station. 
After hearing from many white friends and acquaintances who have had quite enough but are unsure of how to channel their despair and grief, I decided to list a few ways to put the light in the window. Um, and some of those ways include uh, the, the first one. Number one is put a Black Lives Matter sign in your yard. Um, put a Black Lives Matter sign in your yard is supposed to be the equivalent of, like, helping people who are, are fleeing slavery <laughs> from the Letters South. to the editor. Huh? Like, like, like donate money to these organizations. It's like, just let, let's, let's sit down and step back for a second. The people who did that in the 19th century, in the antebellum period, they put their lives on the line. Right? Like, the Fugitive Slave Act, like, these people could have been arrested for housing slaves, right? Mm -hmm. And the notion that putting a sign in your yard, donating to a Black-led organization, or writing a letter to the editor is of similar gravity, I just... I, 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 this is how the online world is is completely detached from offline realities, and it, it is it, it 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 is just that simple. Like if you go out here and you ask ten people on the east side of Detroit what white folks can do to help them out in the struggle against police brutality, economic discrimination, what have you. I I doubt it is it is doubtless they will say that you need to do more than put a damn sign in your yard. <laughs> like that is I will say I've seen at least two articles of people who have put these signs in their yards. Um um and the sign like the black part of Black Lives Matter has been like scratched out. And it's like made the news, and they're like freaking out about it. Which I mean, that's not good, right? That, that that's and happening, that, and, that, and, that, and that's terrible. Like that, I it, it is it is a racist act, you know, and that should be condemned. But listen, like you buy another sign and you put another damn sign in your yard, <laughs> right? Like it, it, it's it's a passive act. It's an act that does very little to change the fundamental structures and the fundamental sort of big picture macro level stuff that's going on. It, it, it reduces those issues to micro level interpersonal interactions. And yeah, the problems we face are a bit too big for us to be doing that, and 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 those problems are killing us, right? Well, yeah, and like, um, and maybe you know, I don't know if Kevin, you want to jump in about this, but I also take issue, like, and I got this, but I got I got in big trouble for saying this, but it seems to me that by 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 Serge's um, Serge's underlying like uh, like a. Uh, uh, organizing structure of staying in your white community, whatever that means. I'm not really sure what having a white community means, uh, but staying in your neighborhood, your mostly white neighborhood and just organizing among white people um, 
to me seems like you're putting you're you know they're advancing an organizing strategy of segregated organizing um and you know that's i got dragged for using those two words but, um, that, but that's what it is so so let me let me say it <laughs> surge's strategy is a form of segregated organizing and my you know i talk about my grandmother a lot Right. But for those who don't know, my grandmother organized during the civil rights movement, led the fight to integrate the first uh, public school in our hometown. And that is the photo that I have in my living room is of my father as a child and my grandmother and other local black leaders standing in front of that first um, that first integrated public school in our hometown. My grandmother did not put her life and limb on the line for us to be advancing a strategy of segregated organizing 50 years later. I mean, it's just, that is embarrassing. It is really embarrassing. And we have to, we, coming together on things like this is hard, right? People come at it from different life experiences. People say stupid shit, Right. That's part and parcel of organizing, right? Is that you have to deal with people who are not necessarily malevolent so much as they might be stupid or ignorant. Or like not right? have the right language that you want them to use. But, um, but when, when you're organizing, when you're not organizing around issues, but rather an identity, right? Mm-hmm. You know, look, I went on, I, I, I would go knock on doors as a political organizer for the Democratic Party, right? Back when I was actually a Democrat. Um, and people would say, you know, Democrats are, are baby killers, they're this or that or whatever. And, you know, like, it, 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 it was hard to hear that stuff sometimes. But I did not take it personally that this person would have said this to any Democrat that came to their door, right? But what we have with a with a organizing strategy based solely around identity is that what happens when you come to a door where someone says all lives matter, right? You're going to take that as a personal attack, right? right? Because you're organizing around something that is indigenous and personal to you, right? Mm-hmm. And it's not, it makes for really ineffective organizing and it makes for just these large pockets of misunderstandings and missed opportunities for education because the first job of any organizer is to educate. And I feel like we are missing out on a lot of opportunities for that when we adopt this strategy of white people organize your communities and black people organize their communities, black lives already matter to black people. Right. So my guess is that we need to talk to white folks in order to get black lives to matter to them too. Right. Well, and and like, so which white folks are we talking about? That's another thing that I want to ask you about is, um, you know, I have a friend who grew up in a, grew up in a trailer park. He's white, but he grew up in a trailer park. Um, and so when people shout at him that he's got some sort of white privilege, like, 
you know, I, I'm confused as to like what white, what privilege he grew up with in a trailer park, um, in the setting that he grew up in. Like he grew up around a lot of racist people because poor white people in settings like that, like, you know, racism tends to, you know, be, you know, more open, I guess. I'm not sure like how else to put it, but, um, or more explicit. Well, like in but, Appalachia, it's the worst because well, I, right, being that, right, it's even worse there. It's like, thir- it's like, you know, like, it's like a, you're in a developing country. Um, but the point is like, you know, there's always also this, like this, this rhetoric about privilege. And, you know, I used to be on the opposite end of what I'm about to say here. Um, I did. I used to be on the opposite end. I used to be more like pro ID politics on this. But, you know, after when you really like when you really examine how things function in this country, it seems like when we're talking about privilege, what we're really talking about isn't privilege. We're talking about basic rights. So, like, is it a privilege to not be shot by the police or is that a right that you shouldn't be shot by the police? You know what I mean? Like, is it a privilege that you have access to education better access to education or that you have better access to healthcare or those things that should be rights. Um, so I kind of like question this whole privilege culture making, you know, this, like the way that this is this privilege language has taken over and, and what that means and how it's actually masking the fact that like, there are like the majority of people, poor people in this country are white. Right. And it's like, you know, I, I just, I don't, you know, I don't know. Like, I don't know what kind of privilege you're growing up with if you're white and growing up in a trailer park. I just don't. I don't understand that. Well, the thing about privilege is that privilege is, privilege theory is useful at, at only a most basic, fundamental level sort of way of understanding how... um like power dynamics in our society, right? So if your friend grows up in a trailer park, um he is he 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 would have certain privileges over a black person who grew up in a right. in, a, in a housing project, right? And it's supposed to be sort of a um comparative analysis between people of the same class and rung in life, right? But the problem is that it relies on a couple of things. A, it relies on white people having a common experience and black people having a common experience, right? Which is like part and parcel of the definition of racial essentialism, right? <laughs> like... It was funny during the whole Rachel Dolezal thing. You know, I hate to be bringing this up <laughs> on, on, on your on your radio program or your podcast. But during the Rachel Dolezal thing, uh, Turing Neblet, who, as you know, is on the um, the cycle on MSNBC, mm. he 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 said that Rachel Dolezal did not experience that thing that we all experience as black people, and that is racism. So that's hilarious. That's a hilarious assertion for a few reasons. One, uh, given that Toure basically wrote a book talking about the fluidity of identities in uh, Who's Afraid of Post-Blackness, it was really weird to see him, of all people, making 
these sort of uh, statements. The second thing is that racism affects people differently based on, surprise, surprise, class, right? (laughs) Because I got to say that racism is going to affect Douglas Williams differently than it will affect Malia Obama. Yeah. Right? So it, it was funny to see that sort of flattening of the black experience. And three, the 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 assumption that Rachel Dolezal did not experience racism is based on something that's kind of crazy when you think about it, right? And that is that only black people thought that Rachel Dolezal was black, right? Right. That she did not, that she only lived as a black person around black people. And that white people were in on, were in on the conspiracy, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, white people weren't racist to Rachel Dolezal because unlike, you know, those ignorant black folks, apparently they knew that she, that, that she was white. That's a stretch. (laughs) That's probably considering she was on a civilian review board for the Spokane Police Department and chair of the Spokane County NAACP. It is a good chance there are a lot of white folks who also thought she was black. So she would have been able to experience the same sort of racism and discrimination that everyday black folks experience who 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 are who were born that right Mm -hmm. and 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 so again it's like race it's like race is simultaneously fluid when people want it to be fluid and 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 it is immutable when people want it to be immutable right right and those seem like two extremely conflicting concepts that that, that 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 it would make sense to sort of clarify is race a social construction or is it not if race is, is a is a solely social construction then Rachel Dolezal Andrea Smith or any of these people can be whatever the hell they want to be <laughs> right and, and, and really why does any of this matter Right? Like, we're talking about this in the in the midst of the McKinney. Yeah, the party pool, situation. Right. Yeah. Eddie Gray and all this stuff. And we're all speculating on the evilness of this one individual. But then that's identity politics and it's modern conception, right? Is that it takes all of these things and it projects them onto individuals as ciphers. Right? And it's I mean that whole that whole thing was just absolutely embarrassing. Um, <laughs> that, 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 I mean that that's all I can say. It was just embarrassing beyond belief. Well, and then there's I mean anybody. Sorry, Kevin, did you want to jump in? Well, no, I, I've just I've got a few things I wanted to to jump in and 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 maybe push this a little bit uh, in a further direction uh, because one thing I just want to throw out historically, it seems that. Uh, People and, and anybody does this in this country, but there there seems to be cherry picking of the kind of history that the movement wants to use to inspire 
uh, their future actions. I, I mean, I think it's good that you're highlighting the ways uh, that whites have shown solidarity. Uh, I also talked about in a previous episode of the show about what was going on in a state like Mississippi, uh, because I've been reading this book that I think is really fantastic. I know that many of these organizers really like it. It's called We Will Shoot Back. And it points to and, and, and describes the debate that went on. And there should be a debate. I would make that one point, is that there should be a debate on the role of, of anybody in any movement. But, but they came to the conclusion that they wanted white people to come to Mississippi to help them fight off white terrorism, people who were attacking these civil rights groups. Um, and then Huey Newton himself and the Black Panthers saw a role for white revolutionaries. Uh, so I just put that out there. But then on, on a more substantial point, I want to talk about this call-out culture issue, this thing that Rania Kallick, uh that, that you faced, that um, uh, I've got this quote in front of me. It was written by someone named Flavia Zodin uh, for Tiger Beatdown, and, and I really like the way that she put this. She said, call-out culture works more or less like this. I say something ignorant. Unbeknown to me, there are now 10 posts and 10 different blogs and social media platforms calling me a bigot and the worst person ever. Each time, every one of these posts escalating in rhetoric and volume. Each new post trying to outperform the previous one in outrage and anger and righteousness. The intent behind it, more often than not, is just to make the one initiating the call-out feel good, more righteous, more indignant, a quote-unquote better person. That, I mean, yeah. Like, uh, I'll put it to you like this. It, now, nowadays... People can't just say things out of stupidity or ignorance. There has to be some sort of malevolent force behind it, right? And it's... Look, either we want to educate people or we don't. Either we want people to understand the perspective... No, 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 no. Do I look like Google, Douglas? Yeah. (laughs) Do I look like Google to you? I mean, that's that's the thing, right? Like... I, you know, I'll tell you a story. Um, I And I wrote about this for uh, the Democratic Socialists of America and Democratic Left. Uh, there was a time where I was an advisor to a queer and trans person of color group here. Well, not here, but at the University of Alabama. And some white people in... Tuscaloosa were organizing a um, a demonstration for Ferguson, like to sort of protest uh, police killings and stuff like that. And what what happened on the Facebook page for this event? Oh yeah, I remember this piece. You were, you know, was that. People started, you, you, you had members of the group that I was advising, and they were just so nasty to the, to, to, I mean, and, and listen, it's not like there are prof- these are professional organizers organizing this thing, right? This was basically a couple of white folks who were concerned about what they had seen on the news and just wanted to do something because, you know, you get into a place 
like West Alabama. And it seems like any kind of real justice organizing is like an outside thing, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, the, the, the action is happening so far away, right? And, and, and I finally just had to send an email to the students that were doing this and be like, look, people have people are going to be organizing after we leave. We do not own Tuscaloosa, <laughs> right? Like, we will not be here forever. And we have two choices. We can either poison the well with a sort of, you know, anger and hostility towards anybody new that comes along and into this organizing space and into this thing that we're trying to turn into a movement. and Or we can be welcoming and we can lay the groundwork for future organizing efforts in this city. It, it, it is your choice, but for the sake of for the, for the sake of this, you know, effort, I strongly suggest that you choose the latter option because it is it is important to not just people in Tuscaloosa, but the people who are organizing stuff around the country that we build a coalition for change around this stuff. I mean, I, I I I always am stuck with when I read about stuff like this. Uh, the quote from Dr. Adolph Reed on, you know, when he was on Bill Moyer and his show, and he talked about you know this student in his this black student in, her, in his classroom that thought that the civil rights movement was fought so that she can have a better chance at working for a Fortune 500 company. <laughs> and she said, well, I really wish someone would have told poor Viola Liuzzo the punchline <laughs> because maybe she would have stayed in Detroit and raised her kids. <laughs> and, and, and I'm always struck by that when I see this sort of exclusionary dialogue. Because it's like, man, I really wish someone would have told James Ribb yeah. and... Viola use of the punchline so that they wouldn't have never decided to come to to Alabama and ultimately die for the cause of equality and justice. Maybe they could have stayed behind and put a sign in their yard. Yeah. Letter to the editor. I don't know. But no, I mean, that's a good point. And I think in the in, in the mix of, one thing I've noticed in the midst of all this is um is a lot, especially with a lot of the um, identitarians on on the interwebs, um, is that anything that disagrees with the framework for the framework that they've put forward is anti-black. Um, and- Anti-blackness has been denuded of meaning to the point that it's almost not worth discussing like like i like i mean just just being just being real it's like we talk i, I mean so what's anti-blackness a disagreement or someone being shot and killed by the police because you know they're black right like 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 what is like what is what even is anti-blackness nowadays it seems like it is just a point by which um by which people 
people lob as a sort of charge at somebody that disagrees rather than being something rooted in structural issues with our society, our economy, our politics, and things of that nature. So it's almost... It's almost not worth talking about in its modern conception because it is of such little value to anything or any kind of organizing that's going on that's making actual change. That's one way to put it. (laughs) It seems to me that the most important thing would be to – and I think even the people who uh, we're debating and – criticizing here would agree the most important thing is centering the experiences of these individuals who are being victims or survivors of injustice of of what they're experiencing this racism etc and that for people who are organizing that when they do launch their movements that they center these people in their movements uh, regardless of the color of their skin, and also as a journalist, you know somebody who is a white journalist, that when I do my stories, I'm interested in the people as I'm reporting on injustice. I'm interested in the people who are uh, bearing the brunt of this injustice more so than the people who are in positions of power and are afflicted or uncomfortable when they see people challenging them. And, and instead of empathizing and, and sharing their stories of uncomfortability, that I'm focused on the people who are bearing the brunt of the injustice. Well, and, 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 and that is absolutely correct. You know, we, we should focus our efforts on, I mean, that's why, you know, I, you know, you know I, I'm full of stories today. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was a day on Twitter where I just was going through just a whole bunch of, like, really nasty stuff being directed towards me. And I went out to have coffee with a Detroit school board member. And, and, and this school board member was like, hey, Douglas. We there there is a meeting for this group called Detroit is resisting emergency management um, that is going on at six o'clock. Would you like to come with me? Sure. Right. I don't have anything else to do. You know, so I go and it was the sort of thing that really puts all this stuff into relief. You know, you have these community members. And you can tell that they're kind of like they're fumbling around a bit, like they're trying to figure out, okay, we have this thing that we want to do. How do we execute it? How do we let people know about water shutoffs in their communities? How do we let people know about the disparities in water shutoffs between 82% black Detroit and suburbs, which might have a reverse proportion of population Mm. diversity, right? How do we let people know about these injustices, about gentrification and stuff like that? And seeing them grapple with organizing strategies around these issues is, is a really great way to let you know just how completely insignificant all of this dialogue online is. <laughs> and, 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 and it's one of those things, it's why I shut down my Facebook account 
I deleted my Facebook account, I deleted my Twitter account, and I only do long-form writing now and do activities offline because it is it is one of those things where it's like the back and forth of social media can cause you to lose a lot of perspective on the issues that are really of importance to these communities that we claim to be representing and fighting for. And again, there's such a great disconnect that I had a friend of mine last year that, 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 that told me like Twitter has 18 more months of usefulness <laughs> to movements of change before people kind of realize what it's all about, and they start tuning out. I think he was being generous, right? <laughs> like, I think so long as movements... I mean, Black Lives Matter began as a hashtag, right? Like, I mean, and, 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 it, and it worries me that these actions and these demonstrations, like the one that happened at Netroots, are pushing away folks who are sympathetic, but who are like, wait a minute. Like, I, like, 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 these are, like, I get Martin O'Malley, but why Bernie Sanders? I get why people are saying that, you know, progressive of all stripes have to do more but what do you want us to do? Where is your action plan? Where? What is your solution? How, how does Black Lives Matter relate to something like water shutoffs in Detroit? Right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's such a narrow thing that is tightly focused around an online sphere. And I really do worry about the long-term viability of such a movement. I mean... Look, it's created a lot of spokespeople and a lot of media stars. It's created a lot more of that than it's created of actual policy change and actual things that people can feel in their everyday lives. And if that's the goal, then congratulations. Yeah, I mean, I it, it sounds a lot of similar um, to, like, some of the, the pitfalls of Occupy, which wasn't a hashtag, but, like, it sort of turned into that where there was no demand. And that's what I noticed about Black Lives Matter. There haven't been like there hasn't been any demands made, which I think is really important for any any movement to have demands being put forth. Um and instead it, it so far it's kind of just this ongoing um reaction to police violence. And so what happens it's almost it's weird. It's almost like this movement depends on like people continuing to die from police violence in order to have its issues put forward in the news my answer to that would be well let's broaden out the coalition let's broaden out the issues that we talk about black lives matter be also because black unemployment is twice, nearly double what Latino unemployment is. To say nothing of, you know, being two or three times more than white unemployment, 
right? Mm-hmm. Like, Black Lives Matter because Black people are the most supportive of labor unions, but a lot of Black folks live in states like Alabama and Mississippi where labor rights are looked down upon. Like, we can make Black Lives Matter by making labor organizing and labor unions a civil right. Like, there are many ways to make Black Lives Matter that can be broadened out from this narrow sort of issue of police violence. I think that that would be a positive step for this series of protests to take if if we're trying to see this, you know, broaden out and last into the future. That's a really good So uh, this will be my last thing that I add before we wrap, and uh, and then Rodney, you can you can get him up. But Douglas, uh, th- one of the things that concerns me is when I was looking at the Movement for Black Lives Summit that they had, and we've talked about Surge, uh, but the other thing was that what I was hearing from these organizers is that they needed a space to mourn, that they needed to be able to get together in a safe space, and there was this fear that someone was going to come in off the streets, particularly white people were going to come into the space, and it wouldn't be comfortable for them to share their experiences. Now, first off, I'll mention that prior to that, at the, you know, the socialism conference in Chicago, there were plenty of black people who were not uh, holding back at all in expressing their experiences and feelings to a room of people of of different colors of skin. And and everyone was responding very favorably and and were empathic towards what they were hearing. Uh, But... uh, this seems to come from a negative place is the problem that I have. If you're going to have a movement, it would seem to have to have something positive at the forefront. But if you're centering this negativity about trying to protect yourself from outsiders, I don't know how you grow as a movement. Look, my wife and I have had numerous conversations my wife is also a phd student and she is also an organizer right and she 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 kind of understands the needs for these types of spaces that people need you know spaces that are lgbtq only or black only in order to process things and all that stuff. And I say, that's what I have a house for, (laughs) right? Like I, I I process stuff in my office. If I want to mourn, I, I, you know, I, I mourn whenever I visit my grandmother at the cemetery, I mourn there. Like I do not take my mourning into my organizing, because my organizing shouldn't actually be about me. Shocking, right? It should actually be about the communities that I am seeking to better and to organize. And what we've done with a lot of social movements is that we've taken them and we've made so the social movements like our, our therapist couch, And that's just, that is not how I envision a social movement has a defined purpose and the people on that work towards that purpose. The other stuff you take care of offsite, 
And, you know... I agree with your wife. I get get it. I get it. I I, I understand what you're saying. I don't disagree, but, I mean, I get it. Like, I'm not opposed to, like, to that. But I do see what, like... It seems like that sort of framework is... um, when that sort of framework is guiding everything you do, I think it's a problem. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's one of those things where, like, I'm a socialist, right? And I think it's very telling that a, you know, when you're at socialism conference, the conference is rooted in an ideology. It's rooted in socialism, mm-hmm. right? Like, so socialists tend to think of things in terms of coalitions and popular fronts and stuff like that. And they recognize that there are, there's space for people of all sort of backgrounds in their movements. And as far as I can tell, Black Lives Matter has not been rooted in any real kind of ideological sort of boring, right? Mm -hmm. And so this is where we are. And again, like I, there's a lot of painful stuff in this world, right? But social movements, social movements by definition cannot be safe spaces because the societies that the movements seek to transform and overturn are not safe spaces. (laughs) That's true. Yeah. So it's, Either we're about building movements and building coalitions or or we're not. I think there's a lot of people on all sides of this conversation and need to really figure out what they're about and what their purpose is. Because I think we're confusing the preferences of individuals for the trajectory is the trajectory of a movement. And I don't know, man. Like <laughs> I don't, I don't see how that lasts long term. But we have to be able to have discussion, right? Like Absolutely. You, ha- you have to be able to have this free exchange that we've had in this podcast. Like this is a demonstration of, you know, having not identical and uniform viewpoints, but slightly divergent. But even if they were more divergent, we should still have the willingness to talk to each other and not go into our own camps because we have different ideas about solidarity organizing. Yeah, without anybody accusing anybody of being racist or sexist or, like, a thousand other things that that seem to happen whenever these debates um, are attempted. Right. (laughs) Well, thanks for giving your time, Douglas. We're really glad that we could do this show with you. Yeah, thank you so much oh, for coming on. I'm I'm ha- I'm happy to be here and thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure.